Please turn with me to John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not now understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Friends, let's pray together one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of it, that you would use it to change us, to grow us, to encourage us, and to convict us for the sake of our good and your glory. Amen. There are some things in life that you can only learn by witnessing, not just by hearing, but by also seeing. And one of those things is the, th is the truth that Jesus displays for his disciples in John chapter 13, and that is there is only one way to the cross. Sometimes when you're moving a direction toward a destination or toward an outcome, there are multiple ways to get to the desired outcome. As you climb your career ladder, sometimes there are different paths that you can take to get to the top. As you leave church this afternoon and go home, there's probably, for most of us, a variety of routes that we could take to get to that same destination. But for Jesus, there was only one way. It's a path of glory. 
It's a path of love. And there's only one way that Jesus could walk this one path. Today we begin a series in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 21. We look at the last uh, third of the book or more that is focused all on a little over one week of Jesus' life. And in this Gospel of John that we've looked together uh, at multiple times over the last five years, we see a number of themes, but two predominant themes about the nature of Jesus are his glory and his love. Again and again and again throughout this Gospel of John, John is trying to point to the fact that this Jesus is glorious in his nature. And we saw this from the very beginning. It says in John chapter 1, verse 14, upon his coming, that we have seen his glory. Glory from the only Son to the Father. We also hear about God's love expressed through this Jesus again and again, and we're going to hear about it throughout the course of this series as well. You remember, of course, the famous verse, the verse that maybe all of us know, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so Jesus, in his life, in his teaching, in his miracles, all of these things display his glory. God in the flesh is here. His road to the cross, the most glorious moment perhaps, his death and resurrection, will be displayed all the more. This glory is displayed even further in his love, in his love for us. The fact that Jesus loves you so much and his road to the cross displays this love. And so it's not surprising then as we move into this section of John that it begins with a sentiment of his love. At verse 1 of chapter 13, it sets the stage for some of the underlying themes of sacrifice and, and love. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved them to the end. <laughs> Another way to say that is that Jesus loved them to the limit, he loved them to the full. And he loves you to the end. And he loves you to the limit. <laughs> the immediate context of John 13 is the Passover. This is the third time that the Passover is mentioned during the earthly ministry of Jesus in John. And for those of you who maybe are new to exploring Christianity or maybe just have a little bit of the themes of the Bible fuzzy as we all do at one point or another, the Passover is the holiday, one of the most significant holidays in the Jewish faith in which the Jews remember the time that God delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. In the Old Testament, you see that they were enslaved in Egypt and every Jew who slaughtered a lamb and painted the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, they were passed over as the angel of death 
worked its way through Egypt, killing the firstborn of every family. This angel of death exercised the judgment of God and the Egyptians for their idolatry and for their enslavement of God's people, but he also represented the salvation of those who by faith in God saw deliverance. And so every year, the Jews would celebrate the time that their people were passed over, hence the Passover celebration, and they would slaughter lambs to remember the salvation of God for their people. The whole background of what is going to happen here in John 13 and beyond is the background of love and of sacrifice. And it's all leading to and pointing to the idea that Jesus is the Passover, the ultimate Passover lamb that would be slain, not just to deliver people from a foreign power or nation, but to deliver them from their sins so that they would be saved to God forever. So at the Passover, it says that Jesus loved them to the end. (laughs) He loved them to the limit. And he loves you to the end. He loves you to the limit. Think about that with me for a moment. He loves you to the fullest extent of love. I wonder if there is anything in your life that you can honestly say, I love like that. (laughs) I mean, I'd like to think of myself as a pretty loving person. I really love good food. But at the end of the day, it's still just food. (laughs) I have been blessed with a wonderful wife and I love her so much, but I'm sure that she would testify to you that my love is at times short-sighted or has a limit. I really love my kids. And even though there's nothing that they could do that would change my love for them, that love is often tested. (laughs) Jesus loved them. He will love them, and he is loving them, even as he enacts this love in John 13, the full extent of his love. And he loves you the same way, and he's loving you even right now as he displays for all of us by the hearing of his word what is fitting for Christians to do as they live out a life that seeks to follow him. And so receive what he's giving to you today as a sign of his love. He wants the very best for you in this life and beyond. He wants you to live in a way that is going to allow you to participate in his glory and in his joy. And there is a specific way that he wants you to do that. And it is the way of sacrifice and service. Jesus has glory that he will receive and love that he will express on a specific path, a specific way, a way of glory, a way of love. And he shows his disciples here. And the demonstration of this love is that the one of high standing makes himself low in serving other people. 
Think about it with me. The text says in verse 4 that as the disciples were gathered around for dinner, that Jesus removed his outer garment, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and taking a bowl, began to wash the feet of his disciples. At first glance, that's a foreign idea to us. It might not seem like that big of a deal, but in all reality, what is going on here is striking. And this is why. Because people didn't wash other people's feet unless you were a servant or a slave. Servants and slaves were the ones who washed the feet of their masters. You understand the geography of Israel. It's an arid climate that's rather dusty and dry, and people wore sandals, and as a result, when they came into the house, it was customary that the servant would be waiting, or they themselves would take a towel, dip it in the bowl, wipe their feet clean so that they would not spread the dust and the dirt throughout the house or get it on the furniture when they reclined at the table for dinner. Servants were the ones who had the basins ready to wipe down the feet of those who employed them. Peers did not wash each other's feet. That was embarrassing. Just like you would probably not want to wash the feet of the person in the pew in front of you or behind you. That would be a little bit awkward. And yet Jesus takes on the role of the servant and he does so to make a point. The point is exacerbated all the more when you think about what was just said about him. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper and he did this. Who is the one who has all things in his hand? Only God. <laughs> and this Jesus has been communicating to any who would listen that he is, in fact, God. Again and again and again throughout the Gospel of John, you might remember that the word for God in Hebrew, Yahweh, means I am. And Jesus gives a series of I am statements all with the same point. He says in John 6, I am the bread of life. In John 8, I am the light of the world. In John 10, I am the door of the sheep. In John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And in John 10, I am the good shepherd. It is, it is as if Jesus is saying again and again and again, I am God. There is no one of higher position. There is no higher place. There's no higher honor. There is no higher value. Jesus is the one of the highest position. And in case you forget, the one of the high position certainly doesn't wash the feet of the ones of low position. Peers do not even wash each other's feet. And God is certainly not supposed to wash the feet of his people. Servants do that. And yet, he takes off the outer garment, 
and takes on the dress of a servant. And he grabs the bowl and he takes on the posture of a servant. And he grabs the towel and he begins the actions of the servant. God becomes the servant. The one of highest position makes himself low. This is the road to glory. The road to glory is traveled by making yourself low in service of others. This is the path that Jesus chooses to walk. He makes himself low. Now, when you think about that, that these types of things don't really fit in this culture or our culture or many cultures because part of the whole desire of so many of us is to climb out of low position to make ourselves higher. We get further education so we know more and can do more. We want to elevate our financial status. We want to elevate our career status. We want to elevate our social status. In fact, the vast majority of people, at least in the Western culture, exist to elevate their status, at least in their own mind. And so why, why would you, when you finally reach a high status, then turn around and make yourself low? That doesn't make any sense. You've been working your whole life for this. We see things like this occasionally, and when we see them, it it sort of causes us to pause and say, this just doesn't fit the way things are supposed to be, the order of things as I know them. When you see an excessively wealthy person getting out of a 20-year-old vehicle with the muffler hanging down, you kind of go, huh, that doesn't make sense. Or when you see a woman that is rather well-dressed and attractive and she shows up at the dinner date with a guy who maybe not so attractive, and you go, huh, one of these things is not like the other. (laughs) Or when you see a powerful politician who, when there are no cameras around, is still talking to the homeless person. Not for the photo op, but just because they want to try to understand their plight. Something seems out of place. And Peter recognizes this, that the order of things is now out of place. And so he feels the need, (laughs) as we all do at one time or another, to say, Lord, this, this isn't right. Let me fix it for you. And so he says, Jesus approaches him around the table. And look at verse 6. Confused or embarrassed or indignant or whatever it might be, there's a source of emphasis here. Do you wash my feet? 
You shall never wash my feet, not because I don't need it, but it's because you're the one who's high and I'm the one who's low. Let's get the order correct here, Jesus. And Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. Now that's shocking. I mean, after all, here's a tense moment. Peter is just trying to get things back into their right place. Wait a minute, Jesus. I'm just trying to get the right order. I'm trying to show you the honor that you deserve. This response seems kind of harsh. And the idea of having a share with him is the language of inheritance, isn't it? Either Jesus washes you and you get an inheritance, or he doesn't wash you and you don't get an inheritance. There's no middle ground. This is an all or nothing reality when it comes to Jesus. Only, only there is one way, only by humbling himself before them will Jesus ultimately receive the glory of the cross and the disciples will taste in that glory. There's only one way it's the way of service. And if Peter turns away the service of Jesus, he will lose everything that he thinks he has in him. And you need to know that because if you turn away the service of Jesus, you will lose everything that you think you have in him. Peter can't have it both ways, even if it is well-intentioned, and neither can you. And friends, we all need to know this and to think very carefully on this because this is one of these realities in which eternity is at stake. It's all or nothing <laughs> when it comes to Jesus. There's no middle ground. And so he says to Peter, unless, I, unless you let me serve you, you'll have no inheritance. Unless I wash you, you will not be clean. This is the only way, the only road. Good intentions are not enough. Keeping things in the right order in reality as you conceive it is not enough. A sense of propriety with God is not enough, as wonderful as it is. It doesn't give you a share with the Savior. He needs to wash you. You need to let him serve you. You need to receive his greatest act of love for you. And only then will you receive the inheritance that he gives you. There is a road, a way, for Jesus to receive glory and for you to receive the benefit. And it's walked in the way of service. The road to glory is traveled by making yourself low in serving others. And so Peter is starting to see elements of what Jesus is saying, and he's starting to understand, of course, okay, washing language. I understand this. I'm a Jew. I understand that there's all kinds of purification rituals within the Jewish faith that we need to be clean before God, and there's ways to be clean before God. And so how can we be clean? Well, he says... In exuberance, well, don't just wash my feet. 
Then wash my hands and my head. In, in essence, don't just wash part of me. If you're the one who's making us clean, then give me a bath so I'm fully clean. And Jesus says in verses 10 and 11, look at it. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. So he indicates that the disciples have already bathed. They don't need to be completely washed again. They've already been washed clean. How? They've been washed clean by their faith in Jesus and the word that he gives them. He told them that he's the Messiah and they believed. He told them that he can forgive sins and they believed. He told them to follow and they indeed did follow. They've been washed clean. And that's what it means for you to be washed clean. That's what it means for you to be cleansed from the things that are burdening you before God. The residual guilt you have from the mistakes that you make. The moments of weakness or rebellion against the Lord himself. Those things, those mistakes, those, those things that carry consequences, but more than just earthly consequences, trouble you deep in your soul because you are not in perfect harmony and communion with God. You need to be washed. And when you put your faith in Jesus to forgive you of your sins, he indeed does wash you. But you know, there's a difference between actually being clean and just feeling like you're clean. You probably know what that difference is. Some of us have tried to play that game. In his book, Start With Why, business guru Simon Sinek discusses the importance of motivation in a very interesting section called in what it's what you can't see that matters and he goes on to tell about how detergent advertisers once promoted their products with statements like gets your whites whiter and your brights brighter some of you remember those commercials He says that the market research indicated that that is what customers wanted. But was it really? He goes on to explain that the data was true, but the truth of what people wanted was different. Makers of laundry detergents asked the consumers what they wanted from a detergent, and the consumers said whiter whites and brighter brights. So brands attempted to differentiate how their detergent was better with the additives to make your clothes be truly cleaner with whiter whites and brighter brights and trying to convince the consumers of their product. But no one asked why they wanted their clothes that way. A later group of anthropologists discovered that the approach was, wasn't really driving the buying habits because they observed when people took their laundry out of the dryer that they didn't actually hold it up to the light to see if the whites were whiter or the brights were brighter. What did they do when they took their clothes out of the dryer? They smelled them, which is what many of us still do today. And he concludes that this is an amazing discovery. Feeling clean was more important to people than being clean. 
I think that sometimes when we engage with God, we would rather feel clean with God than actually be clean with God. And so we do things that temporarily help us to feel clean. They maybe assuage our guilt or they redirect our thoughts even for a moment. I don't know what it is for you. We could list probably a dozen without thinking too hard about it. A ritual that you go through. Maybe the thought that if I do this good deed, it will change the balance sheet for all the things that I did this week that I shouldn't have done. Or perhaps it's those pockets or moments of spontaneous generosity. This is going to help me feel good with God. And all those things can be wonderful and good and even godly, but they won't actually clean you. (laughs) Only faith in Jesus will do that. And so he says to the disciples that you don't need to be washed again because you've already bathed, you've already been clean, except for their feet. If the cleansing that Jesus gives when you put your faith in him is a once and for all reality, you're clean before God, then why do you need your feet to be cleansed again and again and again and again? In ancient Israel, they had a number of washing ceremonies and purification ceremonies in which certain articles or garments would be set aside for use to be holy, in the worship of God. And there is a very real correlation that when we wash again and again, when we confess our sins regularly, because even though you may have put your faith in Jesus, you still sinned today or yesterday or the day before, that your feet are washed again. You're cleansed. You're set aside for growth and holiness and faithfulness to God This is the application, this daily confession of sin and repentance to God is the application of 1 John 1, 8 and 9 that says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The reality is faith in Jesus washes you permanently And yet we need the gospel every single day. And so, where are we then in this story and what do we do? Well, Jesus shows us that the road to glory is when the one of high position makes himself low. He shows us that we need to be washed in order to partake in him and the inheritance that he gives. And now he shows his disciples and he shows us that There is a fitting lifestyle for a follower of Jesus to imitate. That you can walk on the road to glory and participate and partake in his love and his joy and his glory. And there's a way to do it. Only one way, (laughs) at least in this text. And that is by humble service. Make yourself low in serving others. Look with me at verse 12 through 17. He describes what he's talking about when he says, 
When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus says that he is the one of the highest position, and he takes the role of the servant by making himself low. And if he is of the highest position, then you, who are not as high of a position as he is, should also make yourself low. High standing leads to humble service. That sounds wonderful from a distance, but it gets difficult when you start to think about how to implement it. This past week, I asked a very simple question online, and a number of people from our congregation and others answered, and the question was, why is it so hard to serve other people? (laughs) And there are a lot of different answers out there, but here are some of the responses. They're not surprising in their nature. Pride, I'm too good to do that. Indifference, I don't care enough about other people to actually serve them. Lack of time. My life is so busy, I can't figure out a way to create the space to serve other people. I'm just trying to survive. Not knowing how to help somebody is one. Laziness is another. Fear. Fear of not knowing how it's going to work out. Because if I enter into the mess of somebody else's life by serving them, then I can't control the situation completely. And probably the most common response was, I prioritize what I want to do more than I prioritize what others need me to do. I wonder which one it is for you. Jesus highlights again that service is one of the keys to your spiritual growth, to experiencing the joy of Christ, to tasting the glory that he has, that Some of these things will never be fully experienced until you actually start to serve other people. Some of you here today and you say, I feel stagnant in my life, my spiritual life with the Lord. I read my Bible every day. I pray. I come to church regularly. And maybe the obstacle for you is that you are not serving other people. Serving others is one of the ways, one of the chief ways that God grows you and allows you to experience his joy. Albert Schweitzer once said that those who are truly happy are those who have learned how to serve. And Jesus says that those of high standing, you who are of high standing, make yourself low in serving other people. And so what does that mean on the ground? There's a lot of ways we can apply it, and I think it applies to everybody in this room, but let's Just start with some of higher standing. Let me start with myself. Pastors and elders, this means make yourself low in serving the people of our church. 
Business leaders serve the people in your employ by making yourself low. Managers, make yourself low serving the people you lead. Those of you who are wealthy, which are many of us, serve those who have less than you do And to do so, it will require you to make yourself low. (laughs) Republicans. And I notice a lot of your heads just lifted up. Make yourself low by serving Democrats. Especially now. And Democrats. Make yourself low low by serving Republicans. Teachers, serve your students even when they annoy you. Make yourself low. Those of you who are in high school and are good athletes, make yourself low by serving those who need your help. Middle school students who are popular, make yourself low by serving those who are less so than you. The list goes on. The challenge is to think about what it means for you. Jesus is not employing some sort of sacrament by saying that you need to wash the feet of the people around you, but he's giving an example of what it means to make yourself low. What is the foot washing that you can do for somebody else? The thing that you might not even want to do. The thing that might gross you out a little bit. The way that you can participate in his glory by making yourself low for others. This applies to all Christians, not just you of social standing, And this is why I say it applies to all of you. Because if the ones of high privilege are the ones who are supposed to make themselves low, and you, Christians, of all the people of the world, are the chosen ones of God, if you are the co-heirs with Jesus, if you are the redeemed, if you are the ones that God's Spirit indwells, regardless of your status here on earth, you're the ones who have riches in heaven, regardless of your circumstances and difficulties, here on earth, you are the ones that have a living hope, regardless of your past mistakes and troubles and toils, you are the ones with the brightest of futures. If you are a child of God, you've been washed clean by Jesus, then you indeed are among the most privileged people in all the world. And so make yourself low in the service of other people. The road to glory is walked in humble service. So serve as Jesus has served you. Love as Jesus has loved you. And you will participate in the glory that Jesus gives you. The road to glory is traveled by making yourself low 
in serving others. And so the question for the year ahead is who am I going to serve that I have not yet been serving? May that question dominate your mind as you lay down on the pillow tonight. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our pride and our indifference and our sense of self-importance. Father, we confess to you today that for many of us, the climbing of position has been of chief importance. And today we say, God, if this is the way of glory, we want to make ourselves low. But we confess that it's difficult and we need your help. And so continue to call to mind opportunities and people and give us a disposition so that when these things arise, we can honor you and our Lord and experience his joy in serving others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.